0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, cover two resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to part two of our two-part series with Freddie Negretti, world-renowned tattoo artist and major motion picture tattoo consultant and artist. Today, you'll hear how Freddie turned his life around after more than 40 years of substance abuse, crime, and debauchery. Enjoy this episode.
2: In uh, 2004, I was diagnosed with uh, congestive heart failure, and they called it, they labeled it drug-induced congestive heart failure, you know, because I got really, really sick. And I remember I didn't want to go to the hospital, I mean, but I didn't know what it was. I couldn't breathe, you know, and I couldn't. I couldn't walk, and all of a sudden my ankles and legs swelled up and everything, so eventually I had to go to the hospital, but I was still using you know the whole time and uh <clears throat> you know they diagnosed me with congestive heart failure, so I stopped using for a while and you know went on the medication that they gave me because it made me feel a lot better, you know like uh, all of a sudden I could breathe better, you know, and um the swelling of my ankles, all that stuff went down but it wasn't long before I started using again and stopped using the uh, the meds that they they gave me. So uh then the uh the disaster with uh with my son, you know, um he uh he lived with his mother in Grover Beach and uh, me and my other son who I taught to tattoo and he became a really good tattoo artist and we worked together in in Hollywood. So that was Isaiah. And we had a nice
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. My son Isaiah. Yeah. And we had a nice apartment and everything. So you know, I went to to court and got custody of uh, my younger son, Lorenzo, from his mother. So, you know, so I took him from a very safe place where he was living in Grover Beach, California, and brought him to Los Angeles to live with me. And then um, and then I started using again, you know. So. I was not a good father. Uh, you know, yes, I put him in school and everything, but. I kind of let him do what he wanted, you know, and he started running around with his cousins and in my old neighborhood and not coming home at night and things like that.
1: Meanwhile, uh, he followed in your footsteps, didn't he?
2: Yes. Joining a gang. He ended up up joining the same gang that I was a part of, uh, being a part of the same conflict that we had when I was a kid, and um, and he got murdered, Hmm. you know. So this was a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, emotional breakdown for me because the amount of guilt that I felt number one for even getting custody of him fighting this custody battle and getting custody bringing him to Los Angeles then not being a good father not being a good example and not trying to put him on a straight path you know and then he dies so I was miserable I, I was a, uh, you know like in a way suicidal and not not just getting a gun and blowing my head off, but I went into self-destruction mode, you know, and um, and I got the biggest habit and was using more drugs than I ever had before in my life. I mean, it was all day long, you know, and then I, I live really close to the shop, actually around the block, so I would go up and use, i go down and do a tattoo, but it seemed like when I was high, especially on the heroin, that, well, you don't care. And when you have a heroin habit going on, you things that you normally care about you just don't care about anymore, you know?
1: So it, it you numbed about you. you. It completely numbed you from the loss of your exactly. son, which is a a tragedy. Exactly. I would that... wake
2: up in the morning and I couldn't stop you know, I wouldn't couldn't stop crying, you know, yeah. about my son. Yeah. And uh <clears throat> and then I would take that first shot and um immediately stop crying and not caring anymore about anything, especially myself. At that time so so i started getting sick again and uh, really feeling it and uh like clockwork because it seemed like i always got arrested you know i got arrested you know and um and then i went on this uh, thing called prop 36 in los angeles where you plead guilty to your possession charge and then they put you in a program but i failed the program and i went to prison
1: Folsom so County, was prison in, was that
2: uh Folsom state prison state prison yeah the famous Folsom the one that Johnny Cash sang about Johnny Cash, <laughs> right yeah. yeah Folsom prison in fact it was funny because I was thinking well
1: <clears throat> if
2: I'm if I'm going to prison this late in life 50 years old then uh, I might as well be a uh, a historical site <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know I I, I saw that the uh the kitchen place where Johnny Cash performed and, and, uh, the, in Folsom prison, there's other famous things like this thing called the castle, uh, the chapel, uh, killer's alley, you know, so, um,
1: killer's alley uh, anyways, because that you didn't, the guards didn't have a clear view of what was going on in there. So many people got murdered exactly. in that alley. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. It was a, a notorious blind spot. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, then, you know, when I got out, if you don't mind me continuing on. No, please. Or, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so when I got out, um, every, you know, while I was in there, of course, you know, they gave me all the meds and everything that I needed. But when I got out, I immediately started using again. And I was working tattooing at Shamrock, but, you know, nothing had changed. You know, I still I still felt the same way. And I felt that whole, that whole time I was in prison, I felt that way.
1: And, and there was uh, there' was no such thing as recovery resources in prison. They didn't do anything at that time to help you. You were just one of the just a person in the prison population with with no help associated with dealing with this disease that you had is that is that right
2: uh pretty much so you know they they did ha- they do have a a drug program and I did apply for it you know because uh it was recommended to me and and they say that in those drug programs, time's a little bit easier, so <clears throat> I did apply for the drug program, but I didn't qualify because I had a violent crime on my record.
1: Oh, so at that so. time, when was this Freddie? What, can you set the year that this was?
2: Yes, yeah, about two
1: thousand four two so gosh that that they had to be an early adopter to have a drug program inside of the the prison, but okay, good
2: right so so they did, I didn't know what it what it consisted of, but it was really hard. You know, most people couldn't get into it because if you had any kind of violent crime, you you had to only have uh, drug crimes. You know, oh. or possession.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So low-level crimes. So.
2: Yeah, just drug-related. You know, you couldn't have any kind of felon, violent felony. So <clears throat> or strikeable offense. So, even though they had this little drug program, they made it almost impossible for anybody to to get into it so I didn't qualify so I just I went to the regular prison and when I got out of course I started using immediately and um and tattooing and you know it was kind of uh it was kind of hard because now I was on parole I remember I had to use I I got this thing called the wizard you know it's a little when you do uh that I had a test once a week you know so uh you know I would. I would fake my uh, my test. My pro officer was a lady, so she wouldn't actually watch me, <laughs> mm. you know? So, But anyways... Um,
1: so you got pee from somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: And and then, uh, you know, and would fill the bottle. She wouldn't even watch me, so it was pretty relatively easy. But so... Um, but then I started really feeling sick again. You know, I wasn't taking any of the meds. I didn't go see a doctor or any of that when I got out immediately started using again, but I was feeling like really, really bad, really, really sick. And, uh, my son was kind of noticing it too. I tried to hide it, you know, but, and then, and I had a, uh, another bad addiction going on, you know, and, uh, and then I got arrested again for possession. So now I'm on parole and, um, and I got a possession case and I got arrested and I got so sick. I mean, I nearly died in there. I had three heart attacks.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, um, while I was in there, I guess should I can just continue with the story?
1: Yeah, I mean, while you're are in you there, you're you're something? you're experiencing congestive heart failure, and your heart is pumping at what about ten percent of capacity at that point, and you're physically yeah, 110%. drained. Yeah, under ten
2: percent. Well, it's at the lowest that they have is under ten percent. My heart was really enlarged. You know, like nearly coming out of the cavity, and I just. I couldn't breathe, you know, so I, you know, like I, I couldn't sleep, of course, because I was still withdrawing, but I couldn't even lay down, you know, like I had to stay propped up and I couldn't take more than two or three steps without gasping for air.
0: And it was uh, literally
2: suffering. And then I'd have, uh, you know, uh, cardiac arrest and lucky for me, you know, I, I to all these sheriff deputies, they're the ones that run the county jail and, and, uh, they all know me, you know. So as soon as I got in there, um, you know, they they would go and get me and uh, put me in a special uh, dorm, you know, so that they could uh, kind of take care of me, you know. And um, but <clears throat> man, I and so when I would go down, you know, they had medical attention there for me immediately, and they'd take me to the hospital. So you know, after my second heart attack, and I went back to the jail, and they would always send me back to the jail in a wheelchair and in the hospital and then the sheriffs would go down to the hospital and they'd take me out and put me in this dorm. So, um, you know, <clears throat> having that religious background, you know, I remembered a story about this king who uh, a prophet went to the king and told him, Hey, you're going to, you know, your time is up, you know, get ready. You're, you're going to die, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and the king decided he was going to go to God himself and not through the prophet. And he talked to God and asked God for more time. And because of his faith, God gave him 15 more years. But So, you know, at the time, I felt I was certain I was going to die in there. I mean, the doctor told me, I don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant. You know, and I know being in jail, I'm not going to get a heart transplant. Sure. <laughs> you know, and I just... You're not I going to be exactly was... first on their list. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not even going to be on the list, mm-hmm. and uh, and I remember, you know, and I remember telling my son not to come visit me because I didn't want him to have to go through all that hassle. But it was because I didn't want him to see me how skinny I got and how I had no color. I looked gray, and I was just I looked like death. I looked like I was going to die, and I was certain that I was going to. And um, and so then I I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to ask God for more time. I want to ask God, you know, if if He, because I didn't want to die, a loser like that, in the county jail. You know what I mean? It was so depressing because you see everybody, active all around you, laughing and joking and all that stuff, and I couldn't even breathe, and I uh, was in so much pain. And I was like, the thing that really depressed me was the fact that I did this to myself. You know, I did this to me. I was going to talk to God and ask God for more time. And I remember having to go up these two little flights of stairs to get upstairs in the shower room where I was by myself. And it took me like a half an hour just to get up, pull myself up those stairs, you know. And uh, when I got up there, I just said, God, I want to talk to you. I want to, I don't want to make any promises because every promise that I've ever made, I've broken. And I'm just asking you for more time so that I can redeem myself, you know. So i won't die in this wretched Chick county jail and uh, the next the next morning and that night was the roughest night i i had had you know i mean i re- i couldn't sleep i couldn't breathe and the next morning i went into cardiac arrest hmm. and so i i could say you know i always say uh that i got the big stamp stamp you know like your request is denied
1: you know Yeah, right there um,
2: But um, on the way to the hospital the next morning, I felt really different. Like, that whole time I was certain I was going to die in there. But now all of a sudden, in the middle of this uh, heart attack, and them rushing me to the hospital trying to give me the nitroglycerin and all that stuff, I was certain that I was going to live, you know. So um, then after being in the hospital for like two weeks, you know, the doctor said, you're really showing good improvements. I think these meds that we're giving you, and I was like, on 15 different meds, you know, are really working. We're going to send you back to the jail. So when I went back to the jail, you know, um, of course, the sheriffs came, they got me, and they put me in that dorm again. But with each passing day, I felt better, you know, like all of a sudden I could lay down and sleep, and uh, I could walk, you know, even up upstairs a little bit. And um,
0: I even played a little
2: basketball and did, did a few push-ups, you know. So every Tuesday they would take me to uh, the hospital, you know, to check my heart, you know, so uh, it was a every week thing. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, so, so I was in the hospital and I told the doctor, hey, you know what, um, I was telling him something about doing push-ups, And he's like, what, you do push-ups?' And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you know what, he's listening to my heart. He goes, I'm going to have you come back and we're going to do all these tests over again, you know, the echogram and all that stuff, the, the, you know, all the heart tests. So <clears throat> I went back, took all the tests, and then the next week I went back to the hospital and there was a bunch of doctors and interns there and they all listened to my heart and stuff. And then when they left, the doctor tells me, well, he goes, uh, we, we've uh, all seen people, we've all heard of people's hearts repairing themselves, but uh, none of us have ever seen it. So you had to excuse all my colleagues here. And I was like, what? And he's like, here, let me show you. And uh, he shows me I sh- my chart, and he goes, your heart was enlarged like this, and it was beating so erratically that you weren't getting any oxygen to your body, and your lungs were in failure, and your liver was in failure. He goes, and uh, your heart was beating at under 10%. He goes, now it's beating at 30%, and, um, which is normal. 30 to 70% is normal, and, and uh, your heart seems to have reduced in size.
1: Wow. So- That's amazing.
2: That's my miracle.
1: (laughs) So uh, when you got out then, what happened?
2: Well, you know, I I knew when I I said that prayer, I knew in my heart that I was never going to use again. And uh, I felt like I just needed to find out how, you know, how not to use again. (laughs) You know, and so I still had this case going on, you know, this possession case. And I was a parolee and I was, you know, uh, looking at four years. So they wanted me to plead guilty and they would give me just two years, but I didn't want to go to prison at all. I wanted to, to, you know, go into a program. I thought that if I went into a drug program, that it would really help me because I really wanted to, you know, to conquer this addiction. So, you know, the public defender told me, well, there's no way, you know, the the DA already said, there's no way you're going to go into a program. And uh, you have to just plead guilty and take the two years. They got you red-handed. You know you were on parole. They had every right to search you, and you had the drugs on you. You know, so just take the two years. And so I just asked her to postpone it. You know, just to give me a little time. Meanwhile, I was painting these murals in the county jail because I, I always painted murals. You know, and uh, the captain I was painting them for also having me do this pinstriping on these boxcars because they do this outreach program to kids. And uh, so, you know, and uh, the captain liked me, you know. So I I remember asking the sergeant, hey, do you think um, the captain will, you know, talk to me about maybe writing a letter for a uh, recommendation letter for my court? And she goes, well, you know, we we don't do that. And um, and I go, well, can I just ask him? And she goes, I'll ask him for you. So, you know, I didn't hear nothing back from her or anything about it. But when I went to court, the post-offender told me, um, she comes and says, you know, I don't know what you did, but the judge went in, pulled your file and said, hey, this guy's going to rehab.
1: Hmm. Wow. You know?
2: So so that was in the, my second big miracle. And meanwhile, a friend of ours, a friend of ours at the shop, um, and I never even knew this, but he was a the head therapist at this uh, program called Beit Yeshuva, which is a Jewish um, uh, rehab a Jewish treatment center. And, um, you know, uh, my mother's Jewish, you mm-hmm. know, so I qualified for that. And he, he pulled every string to get me in there. And uh, so instead of going to prison, I went to this place, Beit And And um, I went in completely open-hearted. Um, I was determined to do whatever they asked of me, you know, and I was going to do this program, you know.
1: What year was that, Freddie?
2: Uh, that would have been 2007.
1: So 10 years ago.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yep. My silver birthday is coming up here uh, on the 20th. It'll be 10 years.
1: The 20th of December. hmm Well, congratulations.
2: And thank you. Yeah. No slips. So, the, and all
1: 10 years, no slip-ups. No. Tremendous.
2: No slip-ups. <laughs> Tremendous. So, you know, and good health, too.
1: Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So you're, this program is based upon abstinence, also, isn't it? Absolutely. So I have to ask you something now that you know you're you're succeeding. You're in long-term recovery through a program that's based upon abstinence. Um, so a lot of people can't, you know, aren't successful with a twelve-step abstinence program. Vivitrol, Suboxone, and and Methadone are now called, particularly Vivitrol and Suboxone, are now called the gold standard for recovery. What's your view on medication-assisted treatment?
2: I really don't see it. You know that. You know, for me. Um, you know, I I was ready to stop. I was determined to stop, and so that pro- program worked really good. And I think the best uh, part of the program was the psychotherapy. You know, the the, the breakthroughs that I made with my therapist on um, getting over my guilt, accepting my son's death accepting my part in it and learning to live, uh, with myself through that and, uh, having a view, you know, that keeps me on my toes. That is, I live my everyday life as if my son is watching. And so I live to make him proud. So, and then there's the 12 steps, which, uh, you know, don't work for everybody, but they're, they're, fascinating because it's, I think everybody should do the 12 steps, not only addicts, but it gives you a, a clear path, um, with specific actions that will bring great success in your life. You know, um, I went through, you know, a methadone program and it never did anything for me, but just made me a bigger addict, you know, um, and it was still, destroying my life and my physical life. It may have had a big part of me getting a, you know, congestive heart failure later on, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't think that those, uh, those programs are the way to go, you know? And unfortunately though, um, addiction is so powerful. It's really hard when you're an addict and you're struggling and it doesn't matter what anybody says or the consequences or anything you're going to use you know so it's uh it's a tough question sure
1: sure it's a tough yep, question yep and it's it's I, it's tough with so many struggling with this today i i feel as though uh its the solution is probably a little bit different based upon the individual for everybody
2: yeah i i think so but i i think as long as you have the taste for it. And as long as they're giving you the taste for it, whatever it is, methadone, or you're not, gonna, you're not overcoming anything. Well,
1: Freddie, no, I tell you, good. you've uh, lived uh, just a, a fascinating, very interesting life and um, at times uh, a tough life, that's for sure. Um, looking back on it now, do you have any particular advice that you might like to share with others, say, that uh, are walking in the shoes that you walked in and are struggling with opioid dependence? today?
2: Oh, uh, yes, I do. And actually, I kind of, uh, you know, men, mentioned it all throughout this uh, segment. You know, when I look back at every disaster that happened in my life. <clears throat> I could see that drugs were related. Uh, so drug addiction, alcoholism and those things are going to bring nothing but failure, nothing but misery. And um, and you know, a life of clean life uh, being sober, being focused on what you do, working hard towards your passion is going to bring a fulfilling good life, you know, so it's a choice that we have to make, you know, do you want to live good or you want to live bad, basically? You know, and I, I still, you know, I work at both, uh, at two different rehabs. I work at the rehab, you know, that I graduated from, Beit Shuva you know, and I lead groups specifically for, um, for young heroin addicts, and I see this this kind of same pattern, you know, and I think I think uh, there, there can be things that can be done because all those kids start on, um, on pills. You know, they were, they're all heroin addicts, but they all started their addiction with uh, Oxycontin and Vicodins and Percocet and prescription drugs, you know.
1: And was most of it recreational or was it prescribed directly to them?
2: You know, both, both both, because, uh, you know, even, you know, like, uh, some of the kids, you know, maybe started getting it from their mother's, you know, medicine cabinet or, you know, uh, it being, being available through friends, you know, on the streets, but there was also others that were prescribed to it. And, you know, I I get it. You know, if you're in pain and they prescribe you to an opioid, um, I think, you know, I've never, you know, been prescribed to it, but I think that if you follow the, the prescription, that maybe you'll be okay. But the problem is that most people don't, you know, they overuse it because they want to get that good feeling, you know? And so, uh, a lot, there's a lot of people that get prescribed to those drugs that end up drug addicts. And yeah. I think they need to realize that.
1: Or know? they get overprescribed and they do the whole, the whole prescription and then they get hooked.
2: And they get hooked, and then when there's not pills around, heroin is so easy to get. I mean, here all you have to do is just go downtown. You don't even have to have your own connection or anything. You go to a certain area downtown, and people come up to you and ask you if you want it. You know, so it's so readily available. You know, and and um, you know, and I know this. Uh, I remember uh, when I was in the um, in the rehab, there was uh, a rabbi who was in there. And um, I don't know exactly what he was in there for because, the, you know, that treatment center, you know, also serves other types of, you know, uh, problems, sexual and things like that. But, <clears throat> um, but he had a, like a morphine patch because he was uh, in so much pain. But by the end of the day, he would be sloshed, you know. <laughs> and I remember we were on the patio and he tells me, Freddie, tell me. He goes, you think I would like heroin? And I go, you tell me, do you like this morphine that you're on? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, it's the same thing. Same stuff. The sure. Same thing. Absolutely.
1: Huh. Well, I tell you, this has been great. Thank you, Freddie. This has been, um, been just you've, like I said, you've led a fascinating life, and uh, certainly not one without struggles. What final comments or thoughts would you care to share with our listeners?
2: Uh, just you know how how good uh, life has been. You know, I, I've lived a you know long I'm 61 years old and I've had a, a lot of great successes in my life and tremendous failures but these last 10 years have been the best years of my life because I've been sober and uh, and because they've been so good I wouldn't give up anything I would go through it all over again just to have these last 10 years that I've experienced and maybe I'll I might die tomorrow but if I do I'll die a happy man a complete man sober insane
1: Well, thank you, Freddie. We've been joined today by Freddie Negretti, world-famous tattoo artist, and someone who has uh, gone through his struggles with opioid addiction and has come out the other end. And he's just in the process of completing 10 years of sobriety. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.